Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptid Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutions per movie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Camilla Asa. Camilla Asa went from being a stuffy teenager complaining that music wasn't what it used to be in the 60s to listening to some 150 new records every year. After being awarded a master's degree from London South Bank University with a dissertation on underground music from the Pacific Northwest, she realized that what she wanted to do was turn others onto the sounds she loved and that the one thing she could do was scribble something about it. She's a freelance scribe writing for Shindig, Record Collector, and the occasional academic paper and works for the cult indie label Independent Project Records as an in-house writer, publicist, and social media manager. She also manages socials for artists Dengue Fever, Music Docs, Louder Than You Think, A Lo-Fi History of Gary Young and Pavement, and various others. She generally likes cats and dogs better than people, plays bass, and watches too many movies and TV series. And it is my pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Camilla Asa. Hi! Hello. How are you doing over there? All good, thank you. And I confirmed that I watch too many movies, and this is why we're here. Yes, I I don't know if you knew, but I owned a video store for 22 years, and so I miss talking about movies, too. I was like a video bartender, and I was one of the kind of people that I, I'd like to work and be out front and talk to people rather than hide in back and just do paperwork. Um, so this has been amazing. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about the film Sisters with Transistors that you picked, uh, the 2020 film by Lisa Rovner. But before that, I want to talk to you about your dissertation in Pacific Northwest music, being from Portland, Oregon, and, you know, growing up uh, with, with that type of music, you know, whether it was the Wipers or Mud Honey or what, what drew you to it? What was this paper about? Well, I think, first of all, at the time, I was still, um, you know, a, very much of a 60s and 70s person who didn't pay that much attention to, uh, you know, stuff that had been released after, I guess, 79. And one notable exception would be 90s music for me. I mean, the right girl scene you know, lots of stuff from the 90s. So I was so trying so hard to to put together 60s and 90s because I felt like there was an affinity there somewhere. And I was fascinated by, you know, Pacific Northwest scene because I thought it had a very distinctive sound, which was, um, you know, distinctive both in the 60s and in the 90s. And I thought that the two things had sort of a kindred spirit, you know, although many 90s bands were just sort of uh, refusing the past in their own way. Right. I thought 
you know, something like the Sonics did sound pre-grungy or, you know, uh, you know, the Northwest punk rock sound was somewhere already in those bands. So, yeah, I was trying to put the two countercultures together and see whether, you know, the place where you create music might have any any influence on, on the music you make. And it turns out that, you know, it probably did in that case. And the type of garage and psychedelia that was coming out of England in the late 80s or 90s, was. Right. do you feel like that was pretty stylistically different than what was coming out of the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I, I, I think it was different, especially if you look at 60s stuff. 60s psych or garage from the Northwest is far more, you know, gloomy and less optimistic, less flower power than, than you know, the stuff we're used to that was coming out of uh, the West Coast, um, England, you know, the classic psychedelic sound. It's, you know, it's far more um, pessimistic in a way than murky. And I think that in that way, it was sort of ahead of its time, perhaps which, you know, it, it, it sort of predates a lot of late 80s and 90s music that would come out of not only the Pacific Northwest, but the U.S. in general. So in that, I think it was definitely ahead of its time. Are there any bands that specifically resonated with you that you discovered while doing this that you just can't live without now? Oh, I don't think that I, you know, made new discoveries that, that, Maybe, you know, just delving into offshoots and like the Riot Girls band, I was familiar with the, you know, bigger names and finding something like the Frumpies, which was sort of surf rock updated in a 90s angry way was super fun. And yeah, I... I also have to mention that one of the reasons why I, you know, I looked into the Pacific Northwest is that I wasn't listening to a lot of current music back then, which was way different than what I'm doing now. Um, and one notable exception for me was Slater Kinney, which was absolutely and still is one of my all-time favorite bands. And you know, I, I did find a slight psychedelic element to those records. And that was, you know, it's definitely not what's brought up every time somebody writes about them. So, um, yeah, it was my way of, of connecting different things that I liked and, you know, wondering why I like them at the same time. So, um, yeah. I think I think that I I delve that gave me an occasion to delve deeper into uh, '90s music, especially being a '60s obsessed person. <laughs> it's a good era to be obsessed in. It goes on and on and on. I just always feel like I'm still being turned on to things I've never heard about. You know, private press yeah. runs and weird little scenes 
because a lot of those bands, you know, were around for a very short period of time and imploded, but they did record. It's kind of an amazing uh, period to obsess about. Yeah, and you get so many records that never came out, and now that we're all obsessed with obscurities and yeah. you know private press jewels and and finding <laughs> stuff that nobody has ever listened to before, um, you know we're finally getting a chance to discover them and make them great. Yeah, and speaking of you know weirdos making music, I'm really excited about the Gary Young documentary that um, right. that you're also helping with and obviously very sad his passing recently um do you have any news on when that might be released or where it's at well it's still doing its uh festival run so it's uh we have some dates for uh european festivals and some have already been announced and somebody will soon and, you know, after that, you really, it, it's then that you can look into streaming and things okay. like that. But it's, you know, it won a, an audience award at South by Southwest, and it did very well at a few other uh, film festivals and screenings. And I really look forward to people seeing it, more and more people, because thankfully, Gary got to see it, and oh, it great. was actually present at the uh, South by Southwest premiere. So, um, you know, he was there handling, handing out fruit as, <laughs> as he did with all days. And so he got this really, uh, you know, I sort of, uh, I was sort of brought to tears seeing those pictures of him, you know, was very frail um, a few months ago already. And, um, so to see him, you know, talking to fans that, you know, went there to see his, a movie about his life, it's really sweet. And I'm so happy that, you know, I was involved and that um, he got to see it finished. You know, uh, he was my gateway to finding about Pavement. I just saw a photo of some guy doing a handstand on stage yeah. and I... I, I I was like, I want to see that. And then by the time uh, Pavement came to Portland, um, he was already not in it. But I just was kind of obsessed by the mythology of, you know, somebody who was a little older and um, kind of seemed to be having like a show within a show. And uh, I'm really excited for the movie. Yeah. And, you know, I look forward to hearing what you'll think of it. I'm sure somebody will pick it to talk about. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Sisters with Transistors. This was a really interesting film because I know it was about female pioneers in electronic music, but I think there was a part of me that expected it to have a lot more emphasis maybe on synthesizers and pop or rock movements, or even Laurie Anderson, who, who narrates the film, is not a person that they focus on. Um, it is wildly um, experimental and improvisational. Were you familiar with many of the artists in this film before seeing this? Yes. I mean, I was um, already a big fan, especially of people like Suzanne Chani. Yes. And, um, you know, of course, um, I was actually about to 
I think that when I got the promo to, to see the documentary, which was about to debut at some festival, um, I was preparing a long piece on Suzanne. So we were talking at the time and we did the long interview after I saw it and it was nice to tie it up together. And um, of course, um, Delia Derbyshire is, you know, if you like weird music uh, and you're based in the UK, she's sort of unescapable. And, you know, I, I yeah, I was familiar with, with, I think, each of them, but I did love the the way the movie brought them together because it, it wasn't easy I, I can imagine because they, they were doing such different things and you know the movie spans decades and you have you start from Clara Rockmore who was pioneering the theremin and she's you know very much tied to an old-fashioned conception of classical music and then she she ventures into this you know absolutely weird thing that nobody else got and um so you know you she's a she seems to be a tie to to different centuries altogether and and it's lovely to hear you have voiceovers and little contributions from from contemporary uh, musicians so it's you know, it was the music of the future for for, for a reason. So it it what it's been what is being discussed in the movie is sort of out of time, more than of a particular time. Yeah, it seems like uh, a mantra in the film is, "Why do we want to stay within this white dead male composition world of tradition?" It's very critical. Of switched on Bach. Yeah, I think the the you know switched on Bach is being called something of a you know it is a pioneering move moment because it's the mainstream audience's first encounter with the synthesizer, probably. But at the same time, it was sort of perceived as a setback from people who were already experimenting with these instruments because that so it sort of created an expectation from from people the general public from electronic instruments to try to behave like classic old-fashioned instruments so you know that music was trying to emulate something that already existed whereas you know what the other composers were doing was you, know, you can safely say the opposite, create new words altogether. And so, yeah, when I talk about Wendy Carlos, I like to focus more on, on like the Shining soundtrack or, you know, other stuff that's not, that didn't have that, that sort of heavy legacy of all the switched on albums because there's a lot of them from all sorts of different male uh, musicians, like switched on countries, switched on the Beatles, which I, absolutely love as novelty uh, objects but you know they definitely don't have the same depth of of what was being explored through modular instruments at the, uh, around the same time 
before we get into the the composers that are, are that are focused on this movie, I wanted to talk about the is it the Bukula synthesizer? Bukula. Bukula. Yeah. yeah. As a synthesizer nerd of the eighties who wanted a guitar like Devo had and loved, you know, Tuxedo Moon and the Resonance, I had never heard of the synthesizer um till this movie and I felt very naive. But it seemed that almost everyone in this film, or the majority, were using this um, modular system. Do you know much about the history of that, or why that came to be? Versus, like a Moog, Moog or Moog? Can you can you settle the debate for me? I cannot. I've always <laughs> said, but yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I switch back and forth because I think I get nervous about it. Do you know why there was a preference for this type of um, synthesizer? Well, I- actually had a really nice occasion to discuss this with, with Suzanne Chani when we did our interview. And, you know, it was sort of Beatles versus Rolling Stones. They would be big fans of one and, and, and you know, sort of um, publicly uh, not like things about the other or, you know, it was a very partisan situation in some cases. But at the core of it, it's two different visions of what a synthesizer could be. And the Moog tries to, it's more likely to to replicate the situation that you find yourself in with a keyboard. The Bukla is more keen on abstraction, I would say. You don't have a keyboard. So it's, I, I think that for these composers, which, as you said, were very avant-garde, very experimental, very interested in absolute abstraction in in certain cases. The Buchla was more of a completely new thing that would allow them to discover a completely new territory. Whereas with the Moog, you would still be sort of tied to a normal ways of playing music, although, of course, it also totally new yeah it is interesting to notice that that these p- particular people were um m- more um often in love with the Buchland and the moog and if you look at it from a pop music perspective it's sort of the opposite because musicians at the time um were trying out synthesizers when they came out they were more likely to experiment with moogs because, again, I, I, as somebody who has no practical experience of synthesizers, I can I can imagine that it'd be more accessible, a little bit easier to to try out than a bootla if you have previous experience with keyboards or you know traditional instruments. So I think that what's that's is at the core of of the discussion yeah even watching suzanne play the bukla the the person who put this together don bukla was like well why would i want a traditional keyboard if i'm making this very untraditional thing and so he created something called thunder and something called lightning and just watching them play this science fiction looking pad with like mm-hmm. yeah. interesting bird wing looking things on it and little diamonds. It was it was fascinating. 
And I think that for a musician, it's way more of a tactile experience, which ties in with what Suzanne says in the movie, which is that she finds the synthesizer and electronic music to be central. I think that having the more tactile um, you know, experience with it, with an instrument, you know, your body is more connected to it. And the music depends more on your touch and, and the way you approach the instrument uh, physically. I think that's also part of the uh, fascination and the new possibilities that it opened. And I remember that, you know, as Buchla was building his instrument, uh, Suzanne would be, uh, at the time, instrumental in him developing certain things because she sort of became, you know, his, his main, the main player of his instrument. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see how it wasn't just a, a you know, totally new creation, but it also followed the experience of players who were out there in the world making these experiments. After the film, I, I tracked down a 2020 live performance she was doing called Sonic Womb, and it's just all improvisations with the Bukla still. Yeah. I, it was pretty amazing. She basically described it as an improvisation um that I began using in the 70s and continue to use now as raw material with each performance having its own expression. And she, she said one could liken it to jazz. And it was amazing. Suzanne's story, um, who bookends the film, is is incredible because she couldn't get a record deal and she went to work in advertising and almost everything that they showed, I remember is is just in my DNA stuff for Coke and Atari and Cadillac and she did the 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 sound, the music and the voice effects on that pinball xenon which was right. such an amazing it was like to me like blew my mind when I was a kid the GE uh washing machine as well yeah you advertise um, the advertising really presents it as this sort of, you know, ultra modern object that sort of uh, looks like it comes from space, <laughs> and it's you know it's it's just like pure futurism, and yeah, and she did sounds for that as well, and the Coke one, I think, I don't know how many seconds is that two maybe. I think that's one of the most perfect pieces of music that ever existed. It's just, it's everything. It's, it's real. You know, it's, 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 it is the experience of drinking Coke. And at the same time, it's sort of, it has this fantasy element to it. It's almost psychedelic. And yeah, I, I, I love that. And it's two seconds of, of sounds they're so iconic and they're they were experimental like they're showing a series of them in a row and they sound like nothing else and they are very adventurous and very strange and very untraditional and it was just accepted in the advertising world at that point where it wasn't accepted for her as a recording artist and she was hired by lily tomlin 
to compose uh, for the incredible Shrinking Woman, the first woman to score a major motion picture film. Yeah, which is crazy when you place it. It was the, I think, was the second half of the 80s. Yeah. So, yeah, mind-blowing in the wrong way. And she says that then it took another 14 years before another woman was hired for that role. Right. She talks about, there, you know, there were no role models for female composers when she studied music and how it was basically kind of two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, I think that the first thing I, I, I probably noticed was that she was as enthusiastic about, you know, making music the way that she does as she was in that famous Letterman interview where she was that's great in the 20s late 20s so she's still making music with a bootla i think that there was a period of time maybe a couple of decades where she uh had been using different instruments and that and then she uh more or less recently went back to the bootla and this love story happened all over again and she's now playing, you just saw a video, she's now playing again with the bootla and also collaborating with young artists who are, you know, making new discoveries through the same modular instruments because that's another interesting aspect, you know, this resurgence of modular electronic instruments. And I, I like that you brought together um, that the advertising that she had to go through to really make a career out of playing electronic music and the doctor who example which was you know came much sooner and in another place in the uk but it is at the core the same thing people the general public had to become acquainted with these weird alien sounds so in the uk it was television it was you know watching the same TV series every week. And, you know, in the US, it was advertising. So it had to be something very, almost a daily uh, encounter that was enforced. And, you know, it did work because, you know, now we listen to these things and it's, you know, they don't sound that alien anymore. Although I would say that the Doctor Who theme is still one of the probably the scariest pieces of music I've heard. And it still works. It's magic. And I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who, but I'm still fascinated. Wow. Yeah, I'll admit that. And I think that when you see, you know, pieces of science fiction from that time, now they're, of course, they've, they've caged, maybe not that well. You know that you can you can definitely tell it's because of the special effects because of the you know people being a bit more naive I guess it's it's different and you can place them in the decades they were made and when it comes to this music it's still scary it still works it still conjures you know views of of space of the moon of you know alien encounters. So I would say that the music has aged far better than the, you know, the things it was made for. A perfect example is uh, B.B. Barron's 
work on Forbidden Planet, a very corny but beloved science fiction film. Her and her partner, Louis, they, they were like bohemians and they had one of the few um, setups to record in the village and all sorts of experimental filmmakers, Shirley Clark, dancers, um, poets would come over and utilize this, exper- you know, this equipment in such an experimental way. And they were hired to do the first electronic score for a feature film, Forbidden Planet. The music in it is so incredible still. The sound of the monster dying is the actual sound of the circuits frying out. And it is really disturbing and gets under your skin to hear something cry and kind of to hear a, to hear a machine cry in pain, yeah, and kind of die is it's really amazingly effective. Absolutely, and the the sad fact about that is that they weren't credited as composers of the soundtrack. They were I don't remember the exact words, but it was like electronic effects by electronic tonalities. Tonalities, right? Yeah. So, and, and which is totally what was happening also with the, you know, when the BBC workshop started experimental, was established to produce electronic music. Um, you know, they sort of had to create an entirely new department for that within the BBC because it was a, a, an incredibly long dispute between, um, you know, the radio drama department which was what, you know, these electronic pieces were originally um, invented for. They just had to be background noises to accompany drama. And the music department, which absolutely did not want anything to do with these instruments that they refused to call instruments. And it was all a big big question of unions fighting over what was music and what was not. And... You know, this um, fright of, you know, machines taking over and, and, and taking jobs from musicians. And which is, again, relevant. Laurie Spiegel, who's featured in the film, at Bell Labs, she was just making these computers where she would using using punch cards to create music. Mm-hmm. And one of the quotes she said was, the machine doesn't write the music. But it seems like there's a lot of fear from musicians, too, um, just being afraid of the machine writing the music now um, with AI and stuff. And some people are running towards it and other people are pushing against it. Yeah. And it, it, I think it will also be interesting to see where this takes human creativity, because, again, in that case, uh, the machines could do a lot of things. Um, that musicians, you know, humans were used to doing, and but didn't that didn't just that was just an occasion to develop more creativity and and you know run wild with something new and create new sonic worlds. So you know, I'm interested in seeing what this AI um, thing will bring out of us now because I get like you I don't believe that 
you know, the machines write their own music. You have to make them do something. So, yeah, no, a machine is not going to come up with something that Marianne Amache would do. A machine is it's going to take a while before a machine is going to want to make a house levitate through physical sound created by um, electronic noise. That was a really amazing sequence where Marianne is performing in her house and Thurston Moore is cowering in the corner with his hands over his ears. He looks such like such a little kid, like nervous about maybe yeah. permanent damage to his ears or something. And Marianne is just like rocking out. You know, she was really interested in creating, you know, auto acoustic emissions, which are like frequencies, two different frequencies in the ear and your mind trying to resolve the two of them to create a third piece in, called ear tone. What what is what is the most physical musical experience you've ever had, either live or on record? That's a really good question. Um, well, it it depends because uh, I've had times where you know just you, you, I would just respond to loudness, you know, being present, uh, something loud, something so enveloping that you can't stop your whole entire body to respond to it. But sometimes it can be small things that are very emotional. Just even a pop song that comes out of the right moment and something about not talking about lyrics, but something about a guitar tone mm -hmm. that resonates with you. I have this song um, that the Breeders, my favorite band, released in... Uh, 20, uh, 2018, the, la the latest record. It's called Dawn Making an Effort. And my favorite thing about it, it's just the sound of the guitar. It has this beautiful uh, effect on it. And it's, when I first heard it, it was a really dark time. And you know, I was very pessimistic about a lot of things, but I would say everything. And just hearing that guitar tone told my entire brain and soul that, you know, if if things this beautiful, this simply beautiful can come out at any time, so that was a new album just released and it was my first time hearing it, then it's worth making an effort as the song you know said and so yeah i i guess that i i don't recommend people i've never recommended people to sit down and listen to the songs that will happen to you because that's very right. personal for other people it will be just a guitar part in a song in a pretty song but for me at that time at that moment it was the right thing and maybe if it had come out a year later would have been different and not so seismic so to speak so but i would be very interested in you know being present during a um concert although i'd like to call them more like happenings uh of one of these performers most of them have obviously passed away because um you know, the, the protagonists of uh, Sisters with Trans Sisters. 
but it would be great to travel back in time and and be there because it's as you said it was a very in the moment experience in some cases and the beauty of this experimental electronic music is that you know you're likely you likely won't be able to reproduce the same thing twice so you know it it is a unique event a one of a kind moment and you know being involved in it being there it's definitely like you know playing your little part in in, in the performance and and you know co-create with the music as you resonate with it on the other hand you have Aline Radig who it's on a, she's on a search to to get the sounds out of her head they they show her at the end of the film hearing musicians play her music back to her um and she says there were days i thought i was crazy and for the first time i'm hearing the music as i imagined hearing it and it's a very emotional um powerful segment of her just having a complete physical and emotional reaction to hearing what she thought was possible kind of come back to her um as a composer and as a participant and um, as the inspiration. A lot of the, the people that are featured in this film, they're, the way they hear sounds is very unique. You have people who um, can say, oh, the New York, the sound of New York City is an E flat and the sound e. of Boston Harbor is an F. And Delia talking about the sounds of air raid sirens and during the blitz and just how powerful and informative and exciting that was to inform her. It's such an interesting documentation, this film on how different people listen, because even though there a lot of these people are using the same kind of instruments to make this, they're all making wildly different types of compositions. Yeah. I think that's another result of having a, machine that was yet fairly unexplored you know that every each person would would approach it in a different way and again it's not the kind of instrument that you can use to recreate the same thing twice so personality plays a big role in it and the fact that it connects so well with one's inner self um you know, makes for, you know, such a wide-ranging um, expression, a potential of expression. And that is definitely what you hear if you listen to these composers, who, again, you know, it's interesting to, to watch a movie where they're connected so well and at the same time to realise how different they are from each other, how different the music is. You cannot hear you know, the various pieces and, you know, get the author wrong because it's so, you know, that's so, so unmistakable with that approach. Um, I thought Laurie's thing was really interesting. In high school, she wanted to be a, a, a musician and talk to a school counselor about it. And they basically said, you can't. You haven't had any years of training. You can never do that. She just basically was like, I got to do this and I, or I'll regret it. But also talked about how at the time when she was wanting to bring computers into it, computers were kind of looked at as 
you know, the enemy of the counterculture because computers were, you know, non-human and would take those elements out of it. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing with electronic music of this this kind that, you know, from the outside, it definitely looks like an industry-like practice. It has this, you know, computers was uh, synonym with offices, of course. And, you know, that's the appearance. And I think that's the reason why, as a 16-year-old who was in love with guitar rock, I was definitely not considering electronic music worthy of any investigation. You know, I was talk of, I would talk of, of listening to real instruments, which I would definitely, you know, once I get to go back in time, I will also visit my sixteen-year-old self and, and <laughs> kick myself. Um, but um, you know, I was in love with uh, guitars and. My favorite thing has always been psychedelic rock. And actually, my epiphany came with the realization that maybe electronic music, this kind of electronic music, was the most psychedelic thing of all. Because it's, in you know, in the etymological sense of the word, it's the most, I don't know the realist expression of of the soul you can you can hope for. It isn't tied to scales. It isn't tied to any sort of dogma. It's just pure expression, and um, so yeah, it's it, pure expression of the soul. So um, and it's free and it's uncharted territory, especially at the time, and so. Yeah, I think that the moment I realized that I was okay with with listening to it and I found this whole world of magnificent sounds and it's now, you know, one of my favorite things. Yeah, well, when you're 16, you're supposed to have some guarded decisions about, oh, that seems pretentious or that's not real or that's, you know, a sellout. Yeah, and, and- you know, in some cases, I wasn't ready for it, so I didn't try. In some others, I w- I wasn't ready for them, so I listened to them and I didn't get them. And I remember at one point I decided that I wanted to listen to everything the Beatles had done because, you know, I knew a few songs, everybody does, and I wanted, you know, there were the biggest band in the world so i wanted to know everything about them and i started from i think i googled them and and saw that surgeon pepper was the most famous thing that you know the most celebrated of all the albums so i tried with that and i was so disappointed because it absolutely didn't do anything for me which is crazy to to realize in retrospect but you know, I went on and tried again with, I think the next one was White Album. And that was, for me, the, you know, the the moment. And it's, it's sort of absurd because I think that now that I know everything, you know, all, all the albums very well, I can definitely tell that the White Album is, is more chaotic and, and 
difficult than Sgt. Pepper. But for some reason, that resonated with me and and Sgt. Pepper didn't at the time. And so, yeah, I think that in the case of electronic music, I, I just thought, you know, it wasn't for me. It wasn't what I like to call real instruments. So I didn't give it a try altogether. And I, I'm kind of glad that I didn't because when I finally did years later, I had much more, you know, I had tools to, to get it and to, to resonate with, with it and to appreciate uh, more about it. So it, it, you know, it's nice to revisit stuff. It's also nice to have stuff that you've never uh, encountered and to be able to have a meaningful first experience. Many of my favorite um, records to this day are things that I didn't get on first listen. Um, but I owned them and they stayed on the shelf. And yeah. when I was ready, it was re- it was totally, I was ready for it. It's interesting you mentioned the Beatles. I feel like they get so much credit for, oh, tape loops for Tomorrow Never Knows and Revolution 9. Um, oh, that they were the ones who started often because in pop music, um, they were, you know, very inventive and, and forward thinking. But you have someone like Daphne Oram, you know, at the BBC using tape loops all the time to create these amazing nightmare soundscapes for their radio plays. Um, I guess after the war, a lot of the radio plays were very dark. They needed music to kind of match this new type of um, writing that was coming through. And I was, I really loved her segment where they go to visit her and her talking about all the different things she does because she was she was doing loops she was doing you know slowing things down reversing them painting graphic representations of sound and putting it into a machine it it was incredible and then they play like something like birds of parallax one of her compositions and i'm sure there were many people who were who were breaking new ground back then yeah i don't know it's just interesting that there was so much going on but because it was in the BBC radio department, it wasn't being treated with the same respect as traditional composers or pop musicians. Yeah, and I would also say that, um, and the movie does make a great point for all of this, you know, its main characters aren't just important musically or culturally, but also on a technological level, people like Daphne or Laurie Spiegel were inventors. Uh, Oramex was her Daphne Oram's um, invention, and Laurie Spiegel came out with this amazing software in the, I think it was the late 70s, called the uh, Mouse Music, where you could play music with a, you know, the newly invented, um, you know, Apple computer. And you know, uh, I can't help but say if if two men had come up with those things, we would be talking about them. And it was actually women. It was women who didn't have any possibility of getting a record deal because they weren't singing. And at the time, record labels would also, you know, would just 
consider women who were singing. And so, you know, it's it's a set one of the sad aspects of it. And yeah, I mean, pop music did play a, a, a big part in in bringing you know attention to these sounds. But you know, as you said, you know, the BBC radio was already on, had been for years. Doctor Who was on every week, and so yeah, of course, when it's somebody like the Beatles that, to who embrace something, it's it, it does get a wider audience and more respectability, I guess. And I know that the, I think it was the first version of the MOOC that was brought to, they sort of had a little stand at Monterey Pop. Oh. And the two people who were there to explain stuff were uh, Beaver and Krauss, who later produced some really cool uh, electronic music records. And once they got people's attention there, they were, you know, soon visiting different pop acts. I think they they talked to the birds. I know that they did something with the doors. And, you know, they were literally, you know, teaching people how to use a MOOC. And these pop stars, you know, they were so eager to start making music with, with the MOOC that they wouldn't, you know, the, these first um, very famous uh, examples of, of moods being introduced in pop songs, uh, you know, the Beach Boys, for example, um, you know, the, they were immediately wildly discarded by actual players of electronic instruments because they, they were like goofy attempts. And, you know, George Harrison's did, George Harrison did a, um, a soundtrack, an electronic music soundtrack for Apple. Yes. And, you know, people who at the time were already turned on to uh, electronic music sort of hated it because it's, you know, it's like, I, I guess the same goes for Revolution 9. You know, you can't take somebody who devotes their life to uh, music, music concrete, for example, show them that, and you know, people who really know avant garde and tell them that this is a turning point in in musical in, is is history for that genre and that style. But it's it's the same thing we were mentioning about Switch on Buck. You sort of have to embrace it because it brought the. Uh, it brought familiarity between the instrument, the new sound, and the wide public, so that it wouldn't be considered to be just crazy anymore, crazy stuff that, you know, had no place in music. But, yeah, at the same time, you have to know your history, and movies like this are absolutely uh, welcome because they allow a lot of people to 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 you know be educated about about unsung heroes who did great things was there anyone that you felt was potentially overlooked in this film that you were surprised wasn't featured in the film well i i was actually surprised because some of the people who are featured are you know lesser known figure, figures so it's nice to 
to have that wide of a of a overview. You know, this is one movie, and there was not space for everybody, every 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 pioneering Roman there ever was, and. I'm always very disappointed and think that movies are a bit too long with a lot of them, like 80% of the time. I think this movie says the right things. And at the same time, it leaves you with this need to investigate further, which is great. I I think that, you know, when you finish watching a movie and you go straight to Google or Spotify or whatever, that's a good, that's a good sign. You know, I just I feel like I knew you through your your writings. I love hearing you talk about music, and I just look forward to every shindig issue that comes out and seeing what I'm going to learn from you because most of it I haven't heard of. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to, while you're here, I wanted to thank you for that because as a music fan, still trying to find things to love, I I, I just wanted to say I appreciate that. Thank you. It's really, really means a lot. So at the end of every episode, I ask the same question, but I tailor it um, depending on the film. Um, So on a scale from one to 10, with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, how many autoacoustic emissions or ear tones would you give this film? I would say nine. That is an amazing answer. It, it might even be a, a 10 for me. I just I just keep talking about this film. I'm so glad you picked it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I gave you some titles and I was totally undecided because I think we're so many of them that could make for interesting conversations. But this is a Novelips uh, gem and it's it's good to, you know, talk about it and, and bring it to people people's attention. Well, thank you so much. It was so good to see you. And I will talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you again. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday. So be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.